Welcome to the Modern Independent, where we are on a mission to assist modern independent workers in accelerating their growth, both personally and professionally. Every year, our parent community, Indie Collective, offers two 10-week accelerator programs known as the Launchpad. In these programs, cohorts of around 80 independent consultants and coaches, just like you, gain access to an expert-led curriculum, then work together to set bigger visions and goals for their business and lives. If you're interested in learning more about our 10-week Launchpad cohorts, go to www.indiecollective.co, where you can learn about the program, hear members speak about their experiences, and apply for the next cohort. We accept applications on a rolling basis, and as a podcast listener, you'll receive priority when applying for an interview, as well as a limited-time $500 friends and family discount. Just reference the podcast in your application. And now, on to the episode. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Modern Independent. As always, I'm your host, John Almasy, the head of community here at Indie Collective. And today we have another Indie alumni that we're going to be interviewing on a segment called The Launchpad. These episodes are meant to interview members of the Indie Collective community that have been through a 10-week boot camp, graduated, and are in the world doing amazing things, um, and potentially even coming back and presenting to our cohort. Um, which this member will be doing this fall. So I'm super, super excited to inv- um, and grateful that Leah Safina is here with us today. And to jump things off, I'm going to give a brief description and then allow her to kind of introduce herself and we can dive into all of the things that we're going to be exploring today. So over the last decade, she has been fortunate to design for some of the most cutting edge tech. AR and VR, which for those of you that don't know, that is augmented reality and virtual reality, autonomous vehicles, smart cities, blockchain, and artificial intelligence. As a designer, she's driven to redefine how we tap into innovation in business. She's worked with leading global brands, including Nike, Google, Alibaba, and Toyota. And these experiences inform every approach that she takes to every project. Leah? Thank you for taking the time to hang out with me today. My pleasure. I'm super excited. Um, so as we jump into these conversations, I always like to think that, you know, the way that these feel is like you're catching up with a friend after not seeing them for a long time. Right. So what I would be really curious about, and I know that we've connected on this in the past, but for the sake of the audience, you know, um, what got you started in your field? Um, and what makes you so passionate about innovation in the first place? And I guess backing up one step further, in your eyes, what does innovation in an organization, and in, especially in the design, actually mean? Great question, right off the bat. So um, I'm originally from Europe uh, to address the elephant in the room, which is my accent. Uh, and back in Europe, I used to be an architect. So this is kind of the way that I got into digital design through being a designer, but in a completely different discipline in architecture. And I remember very vividly the first time I learned about Spotify as a huge music fan, realizing that you no longer need to buy separate CDs, that you can listen to any song at any given moment. Uh, it was just, I was stunned. It was life-changing. And I think combining my insight into how to build spaces for people, because architecture is super similar to digital design. You're always thinking about what do our users want? What are they trying to achieve? And how can we help them get there, either through the spatial design or through digital design later on? And I remember 
feeling that tremendous change that Spotify brought into my life and how much joy I experienced while I was able to listen to anything and I want at any point. Um, and I think that's where disruptive innovation really got me on the hook. It's not a small incremental thing where we improve the way you buy CDs, you know? It's a huge shift. One day you went to the store and bought a CD, the next day you have it all in your pocket, right? One day you are downloading things off of the internet, the other, thing you, the other day you can stream things, right? And that's why once I switched into digital design, which was over 10 years ago, I was always driven to big disruptive things. I always wanted to play a role in a way that we simplify things for people, we bring joy to them, and we completely change the way that they do the day-to-day -day things. And this is, I think, the way that I define innovation as well. We can innovate incrementally, but that's probably something that you go to someone else for. You come to me when there's no blueprint of how to do things, when there's no best practice to copy, when there's uh, when you cannot just say like, hey, let's do like blank competitor, right? When you're trying to solve something that hasn't been solved before, when you're trying to really figure out a way, how can you be more useful to people? How can you bring more value? Uh, and that's when I come uh, and I support different businesses and companies and individuals in trying to do things differently and better. Yeah, I love that. I, I love um, setting the stage. Um, so one of the things that I became really, really fascinated with, and I had the, the great pleasure uh, and benefit of being mentored by a gentleman that was a part of like a disruptive innovation team at IBM early on in my um, entrepreneurial career. He, like, I actually, I vividly remember, and I tell this story to him all the time. I, I call him my Yoda, one of my Yodas now, right? Um, but the first time I ever met John, he completely tore apart a pitch of mine at a pitching competition because I was trying to create a business model that kept podcasting inside of a physical location. So he was like, you're treating podcasting way too much like radio. He was like, this is a completely different thing. Why wouldn't you create this type of model that had nothing to do with a physical space? It had everything to do with like consulting and living in the digital realm and building for a remote workplace. And we were having these conversations in like 2016. Um, and then 2020 hit and we had already been doing that and it just like fell naturally into place. Um, and Spotify, I think, is also a great example, right? Exactly the way that you laid that out. One minute you're buying CDs, the next minute you have the world's music discography in your, um, in your pocket. There's a great um, documentary on Netflix. If those of you um, that are curious to learn more about like the rise of Spotify, I think it is, you can just look Spotify up on Netflix and there's a multi-part series um, that kind of talks about the building of that. So to dive into that a little bit different uh, more and kind of lock in on this difference between incremental innovation and that disruptive um, innovation, I feel that there's a lot of organizations that want to be that disruptive innovator, right? Um, because they, you know, may have this mentality. It's like you're either disrupting or you're being disrupted type of mentality. But sometimes there's, you know, whether it's barriers in communication or they're not quite sure how exactly to integrate that. 
is there been trends that you've noticed in the organizations that you've worked with of ways that they're structured or ways that they communicate or how they approach things that allows them to disruptively innovate? Um, because especially across the organizations that you've worked with, I feel like that's a, a kind of a would be a cool insight. Yeah, I think the common denominator is commitment to people that the organization serve. And um, I'll unpack that because I think in itself, it sounds a little bit vague. <laughs> so I'll give you a couple of examples. And the grand scheme of things, um, if, we, if, we take, if we take the spectrum of different companies, one of the biggest companies I've ever worked with was Toyota. And they are on this very ambitious quest right now of building a whole new city in Japan from scratch, which is mind-blowing. They're taking out of their factories, they moved it to another part of the country to re revitalize the economy there, and they're utilizing that enormous space where the factory used to be to build a private city. So you would ask yourself, why private city, right? Why private? Why not collaborate with the, with the government and, and just support an existing city? because uh, they're trying to test autonomous mobility in a safe environment where they're fully responsible for the consequences. And that was the initial brief. How can we test self-driving cars in a way where you know, we, can, we have full control, we can observe how people behave around them? And not only cars, wheelchair attachments, bus, uh, there are even some, some rumors of self-flying helicopters, right? Um, but Akio Toyota, the head of Toyota went even further. I think I really admire his ethic. He really wants to truly just improve life for people, not just the mobility, but truly like it, he feels like this is his privilege. He's, he's in a position of power and he wants to use it. So he committed a large budget to that. And over COVID is when everyone's budget commitment were really, really tested. You know, people were rerounding money to, oh, people are no longer buying this and that. And, you know, we, we need to pull the budget from this innovative project. He stayed extremely true to his um, idea and commitment throughout the pandemic. Not a single dollar went away from the Logan City budget. And as a result, right now, it's being built. And that is the real commitment that no matter what, you see the bigger picture, you see your North Star. Yes, we need to sell more cars right now, but ultimately here we're trying to build something that will test new ways of navigating through a city and will make our uh, cities more safe, more efficient, et cetera. That's kind of like the big example. If we think about the small example, you don't necessarily have to have a big budget to innovate. You just need to have a desire to look not at the business metrics, not at your competitors, not at your investors, but at the people who are using your product and identify where is the frustration right now? Where are they wasting time? Where are they wasting money? Where is the product breaking down and they have to throw it away? And be willing to ruthlessly take 10 steps back and say, how can we completely shake it up for them uh, so that they don't experience this waste. And on the other end, you know, we can talk about the crisis of opportunity and the crisis of, you know, the threat of competition. What is motivating you? Are you afraid that somebody's going to come and disrupt you? Or are you excited that you can build something new for people? Both of these um, discomforts, they propel people into innovation. But ultimately, 
if you're willing to say, look, we're not just going to fix what's broken right now. Let's take 20 steps back, 10 steps back and look at the overall journey and see what we can shift um, in our supply chain, in the way that our customer support works, in a way that our website is built to alleviate this pain for people, to bring more joy to people. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, listener. Sorry to interrupt the vibes. I'll be out of your way in just a second. It's Jan, the head of community here at Indie Collective. Thanks for making it this far into our episode. Just a reminder that if you're connecting with this story, you can go to IndieCollective.co where you can learn about the program, hear members speak about their experiences, and apply for our next cohort. As a podcast listener, you'll receive priority when applying for an interview, as well as a limited-time $500 friends and family discount. All right, I'll get back out of your way. Yeah, I love that. And I love um, the two um, you know, motivators that you just outlined there. Could you explain a little bit more about um, what the differences are between the fear of being disrupted and the need to innovate or provide something new? I know that you phrased that a little bit differently there, but um, just to kind of give the audience another analogy, I gave that that little bit of a definition there. But could could you dive into the the differences between those two motivators? Yeah, it's also related to proactivity and reactivity, I would say. You're reactive when you're observing the market and say your status quo is, is challenged. Like we're, we're looking at bigger companies. Um, IBM, you brought up, you know, Windows, <laughs> Microsoft, all of them are being challenged, right? So all of their innovation and, you know, I'm not intimately familiar with their decision making, but I can... Um, put a hypothesis forward that their innovation is coming from the place of fear. Let's not let our market share go to someone else. And that's a little bit reactive. That's why we saw Windows not update for so many years until you know Mac OS started creating really, really new ways of uh, navigating your computer, right? So that's all about being reactive. And sometimes it's really successful if you have a good budget in place, if you know who to hire, if you if you're really if you're willing to be risky and you're not because a lot of these bigger companies, they're really sustained in their comfort zone. They haven't been challenged. So that's where a lot of incremental innovation comes through. They, they're willing to give up one little thing to be innovative, not the whole system. Right. And then you have proactivity. And this is where you know the startups initially came from. It's people with a spark in there who just want to do something differently. Nobody's challenging them. Nobody's, you know, <laughs> nobody's trying to get their market share from them. They're they're just really interested and passionate about bringing value to people. And I'm not saying that one or the other is better. I'm just I'm just kind of like exaggerating in order for our listeners to be able to tap into both mindsets. Both of them can really create amazing progress. Don't get me wrong. I think as an independent creatives, we're constantly experiencing both. We're constantly scared. We don't know where our paycheck is coming from, right? We don't know how to secure our next client, how to scale up. You know, we if we, if we bought a property and now we have a mortgage, you know, that's the pressure. That's that crisis, you know, where you have to um, be doing something differently to stand out from competition. And then there's, we all experience the other thing where you just get obsessed about something and you get into the rabbit hole and you just really are inspired and you've had an issue that you um, had and you solved it for yourself and now you want to solve it for everyone else. So 
both can exist simultaneously, but I would argue that the second uh, one, the, the inspiration-driven one, creates bigger, more disruptive innovations as, as a rule. Yeah, so I'm um, you, the way that you describe that, um, I am obsessed with neuropsychology, psychology, came from a nursing background. I'm always reading white papers and studies um, on, on motivation um, at the neurological level. And it's reminding me, and this is probably the simplest that, that we can break this down outside of like the innovation language, right? There was this study that was conducted, and I'm, I'm not going to remember the name of the university off the top of my head. But the basic structure of the study, right, was they wanted to test whether it was fear of pursuit or the chase of a thrill that motivated rats, right? And so they took these they took these animals, and what they did is they tied a tiny little string to their tail, and it was attached to a spring that measured the amount of force that a rat was running away from that spring, right? And the first iteration was putting the smell of a cat behind the mouse and then measuring the strength that the mouse pulled away from that scent right the second was putting the scent of a delicious treat at the other end in front of the mouse and measuring how much that force was and then the third iteration was the combination of scent and the pleasure and the pull right in between the fear response and the proactive, I want to go seek something pleasurable or exciting, the seeking the cheese, right? Or that obsession, that going down the rabbit hole, that want of creating something was higher than the fear response. But if the fear response was added, it almost 2X'd the force that was put into it. So if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I'm not in innovation, but I am starting trying to start my own business. And I would argue that all of us are in innovation if we're entrepreneurs um, at some level. But you're listening to this and you're like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't picture myself working for a Toyota at this level or building a smart city. How do I apply this in my life? If you want to really motivate yourself to intentionally innovate, don't just think about the thing that's scaring you. And don't just think about the thing that you're excited about, but map out both. Take time to sit down with yourself and say, okay, here's this thing that I really want to build and that really makes me excited. What are the details around that? How it, like, start compiling resources to it. Feel that excitement around that thing. But also take time to write down, if I don't choose to make moves on this in the next year and I'm in the exact same place as I am today, how will that feel? You know, what, what will I, what is that thing that's chasing you as well, right? And that balance between those two forces will not just allow you to enter that space, but I would argue like propel you into it because you have both an acknowledgement of what is at risk if I am reactive and I'm not proactively trying to chase this and what are these things that are really lighting me up, really sparking me. Um, and I've seen that, you know, be successful over and over again across it, interview and interview with different indie collective members. Um, those that choose to map out both of those forces and integrate them into their life are, are very successful at finding ways to innovate. Because, um, and, and I'd be curious about your experience in this. Do you ever, does it feel like innovation or in your experience, is innovation um, kind of like a lightning bolt that hits? Or is it more of a, 
I'm constantly engaging with this thing and all of a sudden something bubbles up and it's like, boom, it's here, <laughs> it happened. Yeah, um, it's, it's very cyclical, I would say. And it's, um, you, uh, you don't have to work in innovation to notice that there's a new trend every year. I think it became extremely apparent, uh, probably around the pandemic, you know, everybody suddenly was on TikTok, you know, and next year, everybody suddenly was really interested in blockchain and NFTs. And then this year, everybody suddenly very, <laughs> everybody's an AI expert suddenly, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't blame people, but um, people get excited with um, new things. And I think the way that I see every new technology that becomes trendy, I see it as a beacon of hope because when people see something new, they start hoping that finally this thing is going to change their life forever, right? TikTok suddenly propelled so many creators who couldn't make it on YouTube, right? Uh, blockchain for a brief moment gave uh, creative freedom to so many artists and illustrators to earn their money through NFTs, right? through direct connection with their fans. Um, and I'm not going to go into the full unfortunate part of the blockchain wave where you know a lot of people just took advantage of it without actually bringing any value to people. And that's ultimately yeah. what destroyed the, destroyed the excitement around it because I really still believe in blockchain. I think it, it brings tremendous value to security. It will give so much more freedom to... Uh, individual creators. At this moment, we have to put a pause on it because of the FTX and just like the bad rap, you know, but people are still building on the back end. People are still building a lot of really cool stuff on blockchain. And I never wanted to work in AI. <laughs> it's not like one day I woke up and like, okay, today I'm an AI expert. And I would not claim that I am. I'm an innovation expert, which means that Whatever is the new next new thing that comes along, I can look at it in a very sober way. Way I can both critique it and get excited about it. And my job is to always look for utility. How can we actually apply it right now in the next few years to make our lives better? Okay. And here's a here's a very interesting example that I think will tie to to the previous point that we we're discussing. Um, I was recently speaking at a conference um, and. It was a conference for marketers. And of course, everybody was really excited about AI. So part of my presentation was dedicated to it. It was really, really interesting because um, what I was trying to do is both change people's psychology around how they view AI and give them really practical tools of how to get started with it, how to find your um, particular way of working it. When do you use AI? Where do you, you know, to stay with a pen and paper? How do you put both together? How do you uh, streamline some of your processes and routines to instead of dedicating four hours to that, you're not only dedicating half an hour to that because you're outsourcing it to AI chatbot that knows you really well or an AI tool that can automate your processes by linking the, linking the two together. Anyways, so I give this keynote and a bunch of companies come up to me afterwards and they say like, look, we really want to bring you in and talk to our teams about AI uh, because we don't know where to get started. It looks very threatening. There are too many tools out there. We're not sure what's right for us. Um, and of course, a lot of these um, 
initial asks were driven by fear. They don't want to get left behind. They don't want to miss the moment when you know they can really beat their competition by implementing something that saves them hours and hours. But here's what happened afterwards. Probably 10 different companies came up to me. And I am the type of person, I say yes to everybody in the beginning. Like, let's explore it. Let's talk. Let's see what you need. You know, let's, and I'm, I'm doing it in a very personalized way. Like, I want to learn about their organization, their processes, and see what works specifically for them. Not just one size fits all. A lot of them, I would say 50-50. 50% are still stalling. Like, I have emails in my inbox. They're like, yeah, we'll, we'll do it in the next quarter. We don't have budgets right now. We don't have time right now. That is a clear indicator that it was a fear-driven thing. Second, they were like, oh no, competition's gonna come along and beat us. But it was not strong enough for a long run. You know, They got distracted by their day-to-day -day things and now no, it's no longer top of mind until somebody actually wants to take their shirt from them, right? And then there's another bucket of them who are excited. They're like, okay, how can we bring our clients to this? Um, okay, there will be one conversation you have with our creative team. You help them streamline their processes. There's one conversation you're going to have with our sales team, helping them personalize the leads and find the leads better with the AI. One conversation you're going to have with our leadership team and see how can we leverage that. And they're just excited, you know, and that's what... That's the, that's an interesting indication that the second group of companies, yes, they came to me because uh, of the fear, but they are excited along the way and they're actually dedicating, no matter what's happening with their business, they're dedicating time and resources to actually do it right now. Because believe me, those companies who said like, let's do it in next January, they're going to come running to me once AI gets to, to um, the levels that NFTs go to where everybody's like, oh my God, what is this NFT thing, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, nothing wrong with that, but the moral of the story, I would say, is to be proactive, is to commit part of your day, part of your time to those things that are not immediate, to those things that propel you forward, to those things that feed your curiosity. Um, yeah, and I just, I just love supporting people on that. It, it could be as simple as helping people know where to look. It's uh, as simple as breaking down people's processes and figuring out how can AI, blockchain, VR, whatever, help them there. It really depends on the um, industry. But I'm just, I just love when people are driven by their curiosity and passion. Yeah, I think that's when you get the most, um, the most impactful results from working with a team is when they're genuinely curious or genuinely passionate about the things that you're, that you're laying out or the topics that you're trying to chase. I've, um, I, I've had lots of conversations um, around AI being in the marketing space, being an agency owner myself, and then also just um, part of my role as head of community is I talk to three, between three and five um, cohort members every week um, in 30 minute coaching sessions. And a lot of those coaching sessions right now are centered around, well, how do I implement this into my, into my life? You, you know, I'm seeing, 10 different platforms every other week coming out. Um, we're starting to see that adoption curve um, spike. Um, and for those of you that are unfamiliar with the idea of an adoption curve, right? we think about something like the refrigerator, right? Had somewhere around a 70 year adoption um, to reach a point where you know it's massively adopted across the entire globe. And then as we've moved further and further closer to 2023, 
that the adoption of technology has shrunk. It's gotten sh shorter and quicker and quicker and quicker. And, you know, the internet is something that instead of 70 years, these are all arbitrary. I'm sure that uh, you probably have a more in-depth number uh, idea of what these numbers actually are. But let's say for sake of example, we went from 70 years with the refrigerator to like 15 to 20 years with the internet. And then we went to like two to three years or five years. It continues to shrink down. So with the increased speed that people are able to deploy things because of the internet, the interconnectivity of communication, like how fast things can deploy, how quickly it can hit, you know, Facebook can make one change and hit billions of people. Um, how does, how does, what are some indicators or things that people can look out for in either platforms that are popping up in their lives or ways that they can ask themselves questions like, is this, am I experiencing hype? Am I experiencing um, part of the um, draw into this because it's shiny, because it's new, because Google tells me I should be implementing it? Or am I genuinely feeling a gap in my organization where I can see where this can be applied and, and I want to plug it in? Are there, are there methods that you use to kind of detect the BS in platforms or you know uh, ways that people are talking about implementing things? Yeah, there's no, um, there's no kind of universal tool. It's it's always <laughs> trend by trend, et cetera. But, but the one thing that I always look at is, does this bring value to people? And I'm really glad you brought up the adoption curve because um, I'm sure everybody has already heard that ChatGPT is the fastest app that's ever been adopted. Like it took so many years for Netflix to be adopted. For TikTok, it took a year to grow to a place where, you know, everybody knew what TikTok is. Chat GPT was so fast. And the reason why it was so fast, exponential, is because it brought value to people, right? Instantly, you used to spend 20 minutes to write an email. Now you can do it with five minutes. You know, you generate it, you edit it, you send it. I'm a super user of Chat GPT and, and Claude and a bunch of these things, partially because English is my second language. I used to always struggle, struggle with like, is my grammar correct? Now I can always, my, one of my most common commands is keep the style and tone of voice proofread for readability and grammar. <laughs> uh, and I do it probably a hundred times a day for everything. Um, at first I did not um, add the keep the style and tone of voice and it became a little bit more generic, the corporate America thing uh, type of messaging. Now I'm like, no, I have to sound like me. A little bit quirky, a little bit weird, <laughs> but it has to be grammatically correct. So uh, the question that you, you should be asking yourself is, does it bring value? And the tools that we're seeing right now uh, are impacting writing. So anywhere where you're writing anything, that it could be helpful. And, and then, you know, that's, that's the beginning of the sentence and that we need to look at, you know, where do we still need to keep that human element and yes you're dedicating hours but it's justified that you're dedicating human hours uh, and where can we actually speed up the processes but it doesn't end there obviously visual tools a lot of um, companies are now using all of the image generation services of course adobe introduced firefly which can create generated fill and all of that um, of course we cannot ignore runway machine learning uh, startup that now creates video from text, right? And we already saw that there's a Marvel TV show that fully created their opening credits with AI, which was a gimmick. It was an experiment, right? 
I think they definitely got a lot of press. I would have never heard about the show otherwise. Um, and a lot of illustrators were really unhappy because they were replaced with something that was quite generic. And um, I think they were using AI for the sake of using AI. They wanted to try something. I don't think the value that they got out of it warranted going with an option of actually implementing the opening credits that were generated by it. It was not better than what a human can create. They just wanted people to see that they leveraged a new technology. So that's exactly a really good indicator. Was does that did that save you time? Did that bring more joy to people? Did that not really, right? There are so many iconic opening credits creating created by humans that and you see them, you feel something inside. I feel nothing when I look at credits generated by AI. But um, again, I will not critique them for using the technology. I think it's great. I think everybody should be innovating. I critique them for not when they get the outcome for not looking at it um, with a critical eye and asking themselves a question, is this the right choice, right? Um, I forgot the question I was asking. <laughs> Uh, you're good. I I totally blanked on on where exactly we started that too. It, but mostly because I I just like really enjoy staying present inside of, of conversation pieces. Um, and I think um w what you just hit on right there is so important for people to understand. And we're gonna get a little bit philosophical here for a second, and we can kind of bring it back down to earth. But um, I I love the fact that you brought up that the implementation of this technology and you've re you've reiterated this multiple times throughout the conversation so far, like the ultimate goal or the ultimate ability of AI is not to fully replace. There are some things that it may be able to fully replace, right? And there's a lot of people that are AI that are very bullish in the AI realm that are saying this is very early stage AI five years from now it's going to replace all creative stuff copywriters are going to be gone this is going to be done these you know naming job fields that are going to be pushed out of the market and there are portions of that right there's a little bit of that kind of angst around those things but the way that you explained yes the technology can be implemented does it make you feel something different does it bring more joy does it save you time right those types of filters that we add in as the humans educating the AI, because right now the language models, the way that they learn is with real human feedback, right? They are, the, the tools are learning from the prompts that we're giving and the things that we're asking for. So the way that we use the tool, and this kind of circles back to what you were saying earlier about personalized chatbots that really understand you and know you, the way that we use the tool is going to dictate the way that the tool provides us responses, right? And it's going to, I mean, we may speed up a process, but if we're not looking at that sped up process at the end with a critical eye, we're still the ones hitting send on the email. Our reputation, our relationship with that person on the other side of that screen is what is being affected by that message being sent. Right. So you can um, have it check for grammar and um, punctuation and things of that nature. But if you didn't hadn't added in that style and maintain the style and tone of me, it corporatizes it generic. It makes it generic. Right. It takes it away from being you 
and turns it into this thing that is a little bit more generic because now it's pulling from all of the input from all the people and just making the best possible guess. Um, so that's something I want to bring up for people that are, you know maybe newer at using generative AI, um, and this is specific to language models, right? Kind of that are initially diving into that space is you can allow it or train it and use prompts in a way to keep your essence as a part of it because it does feel very weird like i can still tell the difference between a prompt that was like strictly ai written with no human editing or input and one that was maybe 80 percent ai generated and then humanized and checked for punctuation um so whether or not that's going to get you know harder and harder to differentiate over time is up for debate um, but I, I do want to double hit on that. And I love the way that you place that, that, you know, does it save you time? Does it bring people more joy? You know, how, what is this actually inputting into the world? I think that's such an important conversation to have. And here's another example, because I know that everybody tends to talk about text or visuals first and foremost. Um, I have an innovation newsletter. Um, maybe we can link it, uh, in the footnotes. It's yeah, the goods at Substack. Right, the goods, but instead of the O's, you have three zeros. Um, I recently ran an experiment on myself where I had three AI calendar assistants uh, manage my day, manage my life for a whole month. And it was brutal. It was brutal in a way where when you automating all these things, and perhaps for some people it's really going to work, uh, for me it didn't. Because on the background, they were constantly moving around meetings in my calendar for me. So every morning I woke up, I didn't know what my calendar looked like. I had no expectation because between yesterday and today, something might have moved. Um, especially some of them allow you to also plug in other people's calendars, like your team's calendars into yours. So if they move the meeting for you, that just becomes a mayhem of two AI assistants are moving things around two people's calendars or more. Right. Um, so I tested three different tools. I ultimately love the one without the AI. <laughs> the three, two are really AI driven. The third one, it feels like an AI, but it's not. And I used it for a month and then I just stopped using it. And I just felt that it didn't bring enough value for me. It actually brought a new type of stress and anxiety that I didn't have before. And when you weigh it and you say, okay, is this worth it? Does it bring enough value? Is it actually simplifying my life? At the moment, I would say no, but I will keep an eye out because I know that they're taking users' feedback, they're innovating, implementing new approaches. So maybe in a year, I can come back to that. But that's an example of how to approach something like this. You have to be open to try things, uh, create small pilots for yourself, little controlled experiments. Uh, and to see if it, if it's best for you. Um, and one more thing I wanted to mention is that I'm not a big fan of AI, <laughs> surprisingly. So I was a huge fan of blockchain and specifically Web3. I really thought that that was a great way, a new way to bring people together. And you know, you probably heard of decentralized organizations and how people were trying to cut out the middleman corporation and do something directly with the clients, directly by themselves. I actually am a part of um, one DAO that bought land in Wyoming 
And now as NFT holders, we're actually landowners as well. And they wanted to, to build the, the independent city of the future there. And they're still, they're still interested in it. Um, they have a really big community all around the world uh, doing that. But what really excited me about blockchain, about all those technologies, is a new way for people to come together and accomplish something. AI is way more personal. It's one-on-one. -on -one. It's you and the assistant, you and the algorithm, right? It's not bringing people together. I would almost argue it's separating people more, right? Um, I recently used uh, ChatGPT to negotiate a refund for myself uh, through email. And it was really interesting because I felt like their support team also used ChatGPT. So just our two little algorithms talking to each other, trying to negotiate something. Um, I won because ultimately I looked into the news about this company and they had a lawsuit against them. So I fed the word lawsuit to ChatGPT and once I think their support system saw it, they ultimately issued me a refund, but it was really sad. It's not two humans talking to each other. It's just, you know, generic words spilled um, one side to the other. And I really don't want that to happen. I know that uh, Google right now is testing a new pilot with Android where they would suggest, uh, where they create automated AI suggestions for your text messages. So somebody's uh, texting you and you know the AI assistant sees that they mentioned dinner and they give you like five different options of what you can respond. Like, oh, let's book a dinner or like, what do you want for dinner, like, et cetera. I'm not a big fan of that because Yes, it saves people time, but at what cost, right? So I think I'm really unique in terms of people, like in, in the field of people working in innovation where I try to be really, really sour about it, right? I am extremely cautious. I would be the first critic of these things, uh, but I'm also seeing the opportunity. So that's kind of like really a uh, rope walker in a way where you're trying to keep your balance and you're trying to always stay um, connected, you're always tracking the news, you're always seeing what's out there, and you're trying to really suggest what's best for the people, not for the sake of technology. Yeah, agreed. And and I, I think um, a great way that I've heard that explained thus far is that AI is really just an embodiment of one part of what makes up a human person, right? I mean, it's, it's just intelligence. That's, it's one thing. And so we created this model that is, uh, it, you know, we'll just use language models for the sake of examples so that we're not getting too deep into the weeds, but we'll, like ChatGPT is the most well-known one, right? So ChatGPT pulled a bunch of information, written information, which is only one type of information, right? So that's only written. That doesn't count oral storytelling. There's things that it can't capture or understand. You know, there's things that there's not pulling in. That's We have multiple senses. We have nervous systems inside of our heart, inside of our gut, and inside of our brain. And ChatGPT is really only the nervous system present in the brain, right? And really only one subsection of the one nervous system that's present in the brain. So when you have something like two ChatGPTs going at each other in a, um, you know, argument for a refund, um, that is just one subsection of one thing that makes up a whole person all you know kind of budding at at itself um and to your point with the experiment with with google and the text message thing um we've seen and i i saw this as a as a psych nurse when i was working inside of that field we're already seeing issues with people especially younger um individuals with understanding how to navigate communication right 
um, outside of a virtual space. It's the first time like this generation, gen, the younger portion of Gen Z and Generation Alpha, they're really the first generations that have had to live in a world where their brains are developing around two separate realities that are actually the same thing, right? Virtual and physical. Um, and so they're already kind of seeing this, well, how do I communicate when my heart is saying this, my gut is saying this, my mind is saying this, and I don't know what exactly the words are that I want to say. How do I navigate these types of conversations, things like that? The more that we outsource those portions to something like an AI, and we're just like, oh, I don't need to think about this. I'm just going to respond with what the AI recommends. You, lo you lose a little bit of that skill set that goes with that. Um, so that's an interesting direction. Um, Anything, anything on that? I, I don't want to risk like spending too much time just talking about like the philosophical implications of AI. We can <laughs> dive back into, you know, your passions and the things that you're working on as well. Yeah, I think um, one note, since I come from the field of digital design, right? I work in strategy a lot right now, but I'm still designer at the essence. I recently had a conversation with Peter Smart from Fantasy Interactive, a really great uh, product design company about AI and one of the biggest one of the biggest questions we're asking ourselves is what would it look like for the designers of the future already now there are tools out there that would create wireframes designs for you without you doing anything which is insane right the same way that Canva really disrupted the way that people post on social media a lot of people opt out of hiring designers now because they can do it themselves in Canva and guess what a lot of things just look like one business looks exactly like the other one because they look, use the templates. Um, so we will see the same thing with digital design. People will be using AI um, assistants, wizards, AI tools to design their websites. It will save them a lot of time. The websites will all ultimately look exactly uh, the same. But um, if we look at the problem from the other side, what will happen to digital designers, UX designers who are just starting with their career. It took me many, many years, I've been in the field for over 10 years now, to cultivate that gut feeling of how do you put together a strategy for someone's digital presence, what needs to be communicated in which order, how do people consume information online, how do you differentiate from your competition, what can you say to make you stand out, how do you convert really fast, all of these things I've cultivated for years to create a really visceral gut feeling that allows me to do my work really, really fast. What will happen to the designers of the future who will not have an opportunity to do it themselves with their own hands, but will be using this generative tools? How do they cultivate that expertise, that craftsmanship is a very big and open question. And I think it's our responsibility as um, executives, as directors, as people who are already experienced in some field to also mentor others and show them the value of craftsmanship, of handmade, of you know, human emotion and inspiration and just art. So that's something that's top of mind as well for any, any creative career, really. Yeah, I agree with that. I 100%. If we are not the bridges between the era that we're in currently in the portal that we're about to walk through into the era that is going to come into existence, we're going to experience a lot of the same mistakes and the pains that we felt when the internet became widely used, right? Um, so 
Yeah. Okay. Um, we're going to have to book another convo offline <laughs> where we can dive into this because I, I could, could pick your brain on, on topics like this all day. And I'm equally as, as passionate, but from a little bit of a different angle, right? Um, more, you're more on the innovation side and, and I'm really fascinated with how it's going to affect us psychologically as people, um, as we go into the, into the future. But um, I, this hour has already flown by. We're already getting close to the end of our time together, which is mind-boggling because it does not feel like we have been talking for um, that full hour. And I want to make sure that we have a little bit of space here at the end to kind of um, ask a couple of questions. Um, so the first one is, you know, you've, you've worked with a lot of these big, these big organizations, and obviously you, you understand innovation very well. You've, had, you've been able to apply in a wide range of different places. If there's somebody that's listening to this and maybe listening to this episode sparked something in them that they're like, I want to do what she's doing, or there's somebody that is already kind of doing what you're doing. And they're like, I want to try to take this to the next level, right? What are some ways that people can work on trying to break into this field so that they are getting recognized and, and potentially getting work and plugging into places and working on cool projects like you've had the opportunity to do? Uh, I'm really glad you asked this question. There are several answers uh, that I can provide. First, uh, I, I kind of already touched upon that, but conduct small experiments on your personal life, you know, on how you manage your day, how do you do, how do you write your emails, how do you create new things, but always remember to start with a human idea. Never start with generative software when you see a blank page because it will never bring you to anything new. It's only remixing what's out there. Only you can starting with something that's really genuine and new and then use AI to help you fine tune it. But so small pilots, small experiments in yourself, trying different tools is step number one. Step number two is starting to implement um, smaller disruptive innovations in the field that you're in for your clients, right? You don't have to go big. Um, I'm extremely grateful to my mentor back in the day, back when I still was an architect, um, David Erickson, who's the founder of Scandinavian Internet School, Hyper Island, who recognized that internet will disrupt all the companies and all of our lives back in the beginning of the 90s. Uh, a fantastic man. He uh, showed me this this tool that now is known to people as user journeys, but back then it was known as customer activity cycles, where you write out on a piece of paper every single thing that, for instance, your audience, your user does to accomplish their goals step by step. And you identify where are they wasting time, money, resources? Where are they frustrated? And you start brainstorming in very small ways. How can we do something differently there? And you can start by small innovations within your craft, and now you will become the, the go-to person for these things. You know, the go-to person who's known for not copying, that's known for creating. Um, and then the last thing I would say, these this opportunities, they're not really posted anywhere. A lot of this amazing stuff I didn't even touch about AR. <laughs> I didn't even touch the AR stuff that I, I've done or, or you know, like, um, machine learning aspects, they're not posted out there. Very rarely people are just like, I'm hiring for this particular thing. Sometimes you see it, but not. You're creating this for yourself as you're becoming known as the person who's interested in that and who's introducing this into the processes. And you start small, 
but the more you cultivate your reputation as a person who's innovating with heart, who's innovating with intention, the more clients will come to you. Um, the gig that I had with Toyota, I think I only got it because I not only was the right person in terms of digital design, but I also had an architecture background. So sometimes it's very uh, serendipitous. So don't, um, I think you should be talking about what you do and you should be talking about your passion. So you should be a, proactively expressing to your clients. You want to do things differently for their sake, for their user's sake. And uh, slowly but surely, the opportunities will come to you. Yeah, I think they say um, that luck is where opportunity meets preparation, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So you almost, it's kind of like a cart before the horse, right? Uh, you have to showcase your passion and understand and put yourself out there and try and fail on yourself. And like, I think Tim Ferriss is a great example of this as a person, right? Yeah. Largest podcast in the world. Why did he achieve that you know what did that look like multi best-selling author it's all because he ran experience on himself and wrote about his experiences and then went out and found other people that did that and created an entire book that he didn't even write that's just an accumulation of a bunch of people that ran little experiments on themselves over time so i i love that and and the final question that i i always ask um that kind of has to do with where people get inspiration from. And and this doesn't have to be like a self-help, you know, topic or anything to do with business. Um, it's really just things that people find interesting. And, and I think it's really interesting to find, you know, especially as somebody that is, is focused on innovation as you, where we find inspiration. Um, so do you consider yourself a reader, a watcher, or a listener? And depending on which one of those three you feel you fit the best in, could you recommend a TV show, a podcast, or a book um that you draw inspiration from or you find um interesting i'm a watcher mostly but i do the other two as well <laughs> and i'll give you two answers i'll give you the boring answer and the exciting answer uh, the boring answer is there's a podcast i really love space cadets podcast um they're they're summarizing vc innovation pretty cool newsletter to get every day and then the exciting answer is that i actually draw a lot of inspiration for innovative interfaces through TV shows that I really love. So for strategy, <laughs> you'll be laughing, but I love Better Call Saul. <laughs> I think he really hacks it. He knows how to bring innovation to different uh, places. The Ozarks, you know, they constantly under threat of death and they have to weasel, weasel out of the crazy situations. And then like, oh, I think I can do this for e-commerce. <laughs> Um, and then visually, of course, Westworld, White Lotus, Station Eleven. There's an amazing British show called Utopia that was remade for, remade for Amazon for the British version. It's fantastic. It was really visually stunning. Um, I, Whenever I see interactive things there, interactive in a way where two people interact with each other in a new way, I'm like, oh, can I steal this and so somehow turn this mechanic into UI? Um, so... That's just, I watch a lot of TV. I'm really passionate about my shows. I really love a well-written um, story. And I just love cross-pollination. I think a lot of a lot of basis for innovation is cross-pollination. It's bringing something from one industry to the other and combining it in, in you know, unexpected ways. I would agree. I would agree. I mean, you think about the way that Einstein explains the way he disrupted the entire world of physics with general relativity, and it was not by doing <laughs> equations all day, every day. 
you know, a lot of it, a lot of it was daydreaming. A lot of it was, was walks. A lot of it was music. A lot of it was art. You know, it's, it's these things from other areas of life that pull in. And I think fiction is an amazing place to pull inspiration from, because that is a true manifestation of the human imagination at its best. Yeah. And, and the parting thought is just really Proactivity is key here. Uh, back in my days at Red Antler, I was known as a person who would just bug the new business team all at all times, trying to understand which clients have we signed so I can work on the most exciting ones. I was like, oh my God, they're rethinking death. Can I work on this, please? Can you can you put somebody else on this e-shop? Can I please work on <laughs> rethinking death with them? So it was all about proactivity and telling people what you would, what you're interested in, what would you like to tackle and showing them that you can. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, so if, if, if individuals that are listening to this, um, you know, or organizations that are listening to this are like, I want to get a hold of you. I want to learn more about you. Where can people find more information on you? And, and where is your preferred um, ability for people to connect? Um, LinkedIn is great. You can find me there. You can um, also go to my link tree. Hopefully we'll add a couple of links to this uh, podcast footnotes for my mm-hmm. innovation newsletter, The Goods. Uh, Linktree has all the links. And also, you can book a consultation with me if you would like. We can talk about what you need um, across really both the personal business aspects, but also how can we bring more of it to your clients. Um, so far, I'm available, but not for too long. <laughs> yeah, perfect. And then if you're listening to this and you are interested in um, joining the Indie Collective community, there are dozens of people um, like myself and Mia that are in the community. Actually, dozens is an understatement. We just hit our 500th member um, about a month or two ago by the time this podcast um, will be released. Um, And I am super amped to be in that community with uh, these individuals that are amazing coaches, consultants, designers, developers, innovation specialists, coders. I mean, every feasible um, job field that you can think of um, is a part of this community. And I love the ability to cross pollinate ideas. And I'm so grateful to have the ability to host shows like this and talk to our members in depth. Um, so thank you again for coming and hanging out for this hour. It's been amazing. And until next time, everybody listening, this has been an episode of the Modern Independent here at Indie Collective. <laughs>